The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. You are a visionary. You have a vision. You just need to create it and bring it to life. Welcome to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with your host, Kate Ebner. Our program will be an hour of inspiration from leaders who are making their visions happen and will set you on the path to having a big impact through your leadership and the life you really want. Now here's your host, Kate Ebner. Good morning and welcome to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life. I'm your host, Kate Ebner, and I'm here today with my co-host, Chris Wall. Chris is a fellow leadership coach and the founder and principal at the Miro Group. She's co-hosted and been a guest on my show many times before. Chris and I are delighted to have with us today author, speaker, teacher, and community organizer, spiritual seeker, and even body surfer, Parker Palmer. Parker has written numerous books, he's taught hundreds of workshops, and he's the founder of the Center for Courage and Renewal. I think of him as a pioneer, someone who pushes boundaries by inviting people into their own larger being. He's certainly someone I admire and I'm honored to have on the show today. Welcome, Chris, and welcome, Parker, to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life. Thank you, Kate. Good to be with with you and Chris. Thank you, Parker. So I'm going to start us off, Parker. And uh, the first question is a big one. We know that you are interested in democracy, community, courage, resurrection, renewal, non-positional leadership, and I don't want to put a boundary on your thinking. So I just want to ask you, in your view of the world right now, Parker, what is becoming imperative? What is becoming, I'm sorry? Imperative. Imperative. Mm-hmm. Well, I think uh, in the wake of my recent book, Healing the Heart of Democracy, that subject is very much on my mind. And I think what's becoming imperative in this country is that we remember that the country was founded on we the people, and that um, democracy is not about them, those people who hold elected office, at least not fundamentally and primarily. It's about us. It's about we the people, and it's about our capacity to talk with each other and to be with each other across our lines of difference. And so I'm devoting a lot of my energies, and I very much admire the many other people who are are doing likewise, to um, hosting those kinds of conversations where the difference becomes an asset, not a liability, and where we remember that American democracy is distinguished by the fact that the founders of this country made difference and conflict an engine of social change rather than an enemy of a good social order. Mm-hmm. So you're saying that a different mindset is an imperative around what we really mean by democracy and who owns the democracy. 
Absolutely. And um, when when people say to me, well, that's a hopeless situation, look at Congress for the last four or eight or 12 years, um, my response is, is simply this. We talk across lines of difference all the time in our institutional and individual lives. We do that in families. We do that in friendships. We certainly do it in the arts and sciences. We do it in business and industry. All of these are places where people bring different views to the table and where we have learned to solve problems by being in dialogue with those differences rather than demonizing those who differ with us or simply walking away from the conversation in disgust. So we have that capacity as human beings to hold differences creatively in a life-giving manner. Um, The question is now, the challenge is now, to apply those capacities to our political lives. Great. That's great. And so um, as we're thinking big with you, um, would you say that this is your vision for our country? Yeah, I, I think, you know, I think my vision is a hopeful vision. Um, every now and then someone will ask me, since I've written a book called Healing the Heart of Democracy, um, how can you be hopeful about something like that given the current situation? And my my quick response is always, well, hope keeps me employed. Um, and I, I think there's actually a lot of truth in that. If you lose hope, if you turn to cynicism and despair, I don't know what else there is to do but to go home and hunker down in a corner and uh, and suck your thumb. Um, that doesn't seem to me like a very grown-up way to live. And uh, and so I am. I have a hopeful vision of possibilities. I I think it depends on people in local venues, these very close at hand places where we live our lives, the family, the neighborhood. Um, school classrooms of various sorts, religious communities, the workplace, um, the spaces of public life. Uh, It depends on people in those places doing whatever they can to build these bridges across lines of difference. And there's a lot that can be done in in all of those places to fulfill um, the human possibility and the potentials of democracy. Yeah. I have a question. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, I, I I love the way you're talking about this, about talking with each other across the lines of difference and seeing that as a creative opportunity uh, rather than as a polarizing one. Could you just say a little bit more, Parker, about about the how-to? You know, how do you, how do, you do that when you're aware the person you're talking with or the group you're talking with has a completely different stance? How do you hold that creatively? Right. Well, there's so many stories, uh, Kate, along those lines, it's hard to know which one to pick. Let me tell at least one, maybe two. So one is that I know of workshops, I do some of these myself, that involve bringing people together around very contentious issues such as abortion, where people have all kinds of legitimate differences in how they how they view the issue, the stand they take. But in these day-long workshops, people are prohibited until the very last hour from saying what their position is. Instead, they're, they're coached by a good facilitator in how to tell the life story that led them to whatever position they happen to hold. 
And most of the day is spent with people in small group settings listening to each other's life stories. When you get to the final hour, uh, people are ready to hear the positions that folks have taken with new ears because they've suddenly realized that two people who hold very different viewpoints have essentially the same life story. So the storytelling um, about uh, where our views come from, um, you know, how, how they arise from the soil of, of our own lives, that's always what humanizes the conversation. Um, as I like to say in the work that I do, it's more important to be in right relationship than it is to be right. Because, mm-hmm. because if we're in right relationship with one another, we, we're creating a container in which to hold these differences in a creative rather than uh, violent way. And, uh, and that, cr- that container is often created by this simple act of storytelling, which, of course, is what human beings have been doing for millennia a very different thing than sort of picking up the position we hold as if it were a rock in our hand and throwing it at the other person's head as if that were the way to make a point or to make <laughs> any, any sort of progress. Mm. So I'm curious about when Kate asked you about the how-to, it sounds to me like you're talking about helping people really listen deeply to each other as a skill builder for moving through contentious issues. Yes, absolutely. Um, In the retreat work I do through the Center for Courage and Renewal, which has now been up and running for 20 years and has worked with, uh, in the last decade, in in its 501c3 nonprofit form, has worked with probably 65,000 people Um, across the country in a variety of professions. We have some very simple ground rules in the retreats we run, and these are often three-day retreats, and we do perhaps uh, eight of them over a two-year period with the same cohort of people, or perhaps five uh, three-day retreats over an 18-month period. We have some very simple ground rules that are designed to help people learn how to listen. Um, I won't give you all of those, but let me give you the most basic and and really the simplest, and that is that from the opening evening of this series of retreats, we say to people, the ground rule here is no fixing, no saving, no advising, and no correcting each other. (laughs) And there's always somebody in the group who says, well, what in heaven's name are we going to do for the next year and a half or two years? You've just taken away the only things we know how to do. myself. 
I have to hear my own voice in a new way. And human beings have an amazing capacity for self-correction if we take them out of this context of, of either uh, verbal combat uh, or a kind of false helper mentality um, yeah. that we so easily slip into as the, as the default way of being with each other in this culture. So these are teachable things. Mm-hmm. And what's amazing to me is how quickly people come into this new space of relationship, this new space of listening, uh, this new space of being in right relationship with each other where, where creative things can happen. Mm-hmm. That One is a hopeful qu- view. Yeah. I, I'm, I, curi- I'm curious, what do you think, Parker, um, what, do you think, what, what do you think accounts for the fact that people can turn so quickly from this habit that they have of fixing, advising, correcting, etc., to what it is you're describing. What is it inside of people that is being touched? Well, I, it's a great question, Chris, and I, I think the simple answer is they feel an enormous sense of relief mm. when they realize they're in a place where they don't have to do things that they sort of feel programmed to do, but that at some level we all know are impossible. Um, you come to me with a problem, and uh, I somehow, in my default position, think that my job is to solve your problem. But I also know, it's, if I'm honest with myself, that I have so many problems that I can't, of my own that I can't solve. How could I possibly be so presumptuous as to think I should solve, could solve yours? And so I labor mightily, and you are also laboring because you, you, you're aware that I'm not really listening to you. I'm not really receiving you as you are. I'm trying to think of my next smart answer and my next smart answer. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and when we relieve everybody of that burden with this minimal sort of ground rule that thou shalt not fix each other, Something new happens, and I think that new thing is that we start to companion each other. We nice. start to be present to one another in a way that is ultimately the most rewarding gift um, people can give to each other. That's a, yeah. such a beautiful sentiment. We're actually going to have to take a break right now, and I hope when we return we can pick up on this idea of companioning each other instead of advising and problem-solving and fixing. This is Kate Ebner. I'm here with Chris Wall, and today we're talking with Parker Palmer. We'll be right back. Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business. Do you want to take your organization to the next level? The Nebo Company develops leaders, teams, and organizations to achieve their highest potential. We provide executive and team coaching, leadership courses, mentor programs, and retreats tailored to the unique goals of your organization's leaders. With national reach, Nebo specializes in helping senior leaders to articulate a compelling vision, then develop the strategy, goals, and accountabilities that make the vision real. For more information, visit NeboCompany.com. Be sure to ask about our leadership and life curriculum. Again, that's NeboCompany.com. 
you need directions to solid financial future? If so, the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern for the Money Answers Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with host Kate Ebner. We'd love to hear from you. Pick up your phone and call into 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, please send it to visionaryleader at nebocompany.com. Now, back to today's program. Hello, and welcome back to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life. This is Kate Ebner. I hope you're staying up to date with the latest news about our guests on the show by signing up for our newsletter at nebocompany.com. I'm here with my co-host, Chris Wall, today, and we're joined by the legendary teacher, writer, and thinker, Parker Palmer. Parker, right before the break, we were talking about, Chris was asking about the um, experience people have uh, when they're at one of your retreats or when they're with people who are not in the mindset to uh, fix them or evaluate them or advise them, but actually to receive them and to really be a companion to them. And I wanted to ask you to sort of link this back to your current work um, looking at democracy and looking at um, the way that we can move across these lines of difference. You know, what happens when we take away this advising, you know, urge that we have and we're in a conversation where there's real difference. We've heard each other's stories. We know we're not going to try to fix or reform the other person. What happens next? Well, I, I think we both begin to sense that we're entering into a, a deeper relationship that's that's really hard to put words to because it's uh, it's very it's not being built by words so much as by receptivity, um, by presence, by things that we can barely find the language for. But let me, let me drive this deep by saying that I often say to groups um, that the experience we, that we want to have with one another is in certain ways akin to the experience of sitting at the bedside of a dying person. Now that's something that some of us have done, and if you have done it, you know that it's one of the most powerful experiences that life has to offer. Um, I think two things happen to us when we sit at the bedside of a dying person. One is we realize, maybe for the first time in our lives, that we are sitting with a problem that we cannot solve, and, and we can't pretend we can solve it. We can't have the pretense that we can solve it. And and so I've asked people, if you're not sitting there as a fixer or a problem solver, what are you doing? And the only answer I've ever heard is some variation on, I'm being fully present to that person, as fully present as I know how. And, and why are you doing that, I'll ask, and they'll say, well, 
it's a sign of respect, and I can feel some kind of encouragement flowing from me to them as I practice that deep respect in, in the presence of this ultimate mystery of death. And I think a second thing that happens when we're there is we realize that the most disrespectful thing we could do would be to turn away from the dying person, to avert our eyes, to walk out of the room, because it's just too problematic or, or, or too unhappy or too ugly for us to bear witness to. That would be ultimate disrespect. And so we stay with it. But we, we stay with it in a way that doesn't carry the pre- presumptuousness of, of, of that we can fix this. We, we stay with it in a humble way that, that wants to offer, that wants to walk alongside and offer the encouragement of the presence of, of, another, of another human being. And I sometimes say, you know, we're all dying all the time anyway, so why wait until the last half hour to <laughs> practice this way of being present to one another? Let's start right now. That's a, a great invitation. And I'll, I'll just follow up with, with another question, which it, it sounds to me like this is listening from the heart instead of the head. You know, I'm, I'm making a bit of a, a leap, maybe metaphorically, but but imagine sitting down across those lines of difference, thinking, okay, we're here to debate, or I'm going to convince you of my point of view. It's really coming out of the mind, but this way of listening, you know, connected by an appreciation of the other person's story and a removal of problem solving, really just that emphasis on receiving and encouraging um, through presence, that sounds like a whole nother way of being with another person that's very much about a heart-to-heart kind of connection. Is that right? It, yes, I think you're absolutely right. Um, the, the only thing I'll, I'll add to that, Kate, is that in my book, Healing the Heart of Democracy, where that word heart obviously plays a central role, um, I, I take some time to explain the fact that, that I'm using the word uh, in its in its original and ancient sense. So the word comes to us from the Latin root core, C-O-R, which points to its original meaning, which has to do with the heart as the core, C-O-R-E, of our being. Um, The heart originally was that place where all of our faculties for knowing and, and doing converge. Um, where, where not only the feelings, as we commonly associate the word with today, not only the feelings are found, but also the intellect and intuition and dreams and bodily knowing and relational knowing and so forth and so on. All of, as we say here in Wisconsin, the whole kielbasa, um, everything we bring to the table that makes us human. And so it's this very rich uh, center place in, in the human self where we're receiving each other when we learn to listen deeply and, and to respond from, from that place. And I'll, I'll just say a word about the response part of this, because in our retreats, it, it could sound as if all we do is, is listen, but we also respond, but, but we respond in a way that deepens listening. And, and one of those ways is, is to respond by asking whoever is speaking an honest, open question. A question, and, and here I'll quote a writer named Nell Morton, a question that helps hear that other pe- person into speech. 
that helps hear that other person into speech. So, as I like to tell my retreat groups, have you thought about seeing a therapist is not an honest, open question. That's, that's a little speech in disguise. That's a little advice in disguise. And, and we're very skillful at asking questions that kind of slip our agenda in. An honest, open question is, is one that you can't possibly sit there thinking, I know the right answer to this question, and I sure hope you give it to me. So if, if I talk about an experience and someone asks me, have you ever had an experience like that before? That's an honest, open question. And, and if I say, yes, I have, and they, they might go on to say, could you describe that experience and tell, you, tell us what you learned from it that might be useful in this current experience? That's an honest, open question, because they can't be sitting there thinking, well, I know exactly what he should say. Um, they, they help hear me into deeper speech by allowing me to go to the next level of my own awareness and to start connecting dots in my own life that I may not have connected, probably haven't connected, in that kind of internal dialogue that keeps recycling itself. Thank you for sharing that. That's that's a wonderful illumination of, of this idea. Um, and I, Chris, I'd love to hear what you're thinking as you're listening. Well, I am thinking about the power of the heart, and I'm juxtaposing that against uh, ego. And so my question is really about what what is a person to do who is a part of an institution where they're not learning these skills from you, and yet they need skills to influence from within. Maybe they've got a big-hearted nature about them. Maybe they are totally capable of answering or ask, asking these open-hearted questions. And I wonder... What happens inside inside of organizations or inside of a democracy like you're talking about, uh, inside of political conversations, where um, some, it doesn't happen, maybe that's my question, where someone's presence can actually um, shift the way a person is, is asserting, uh, taking a stand or having an answer or solving a problem? Yeah. And that's a situation, of course, in which we, we all find ourselves most of the time because the institutional settings in which we work operate by a different logic than the logic of the human heart. It's, it's often a logic of self-protection and self-preservation and self-promotion, the institutional logic is. And so to stand against that as a person with heart coming from the heart in this rich sense that we've been talking about is an act of courage, and it's no accident that the word courage also is also rooted in the in the Latin for heart, heart. Um, so that it it all connects back at the, back at the beginning. You know what what I believe it, and my experience is. You, you mentioned early in the show that I have some history as a community organizer. I believe that institutional frameworks and structures are necessary and important and can be more or less functional. They can move along a continuum from very dysfunctional to highly functional. But they will never operate by the logic of the human heart. The the human heart gets expressed in communal forms that emerge within that institution that don't involve everybody, but that involve 
few people, maybe more than a few people, encouraging each other in making the kind of witness that we've just been talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, if you think of how change has happened um, in human history, including change in American democracy and its core institutions, um, we just celebrated the birthday of, of Martin Luther King, Jr. on January 20th. And, of course, he represents... Um, a, a great movement that was a communal movement of people connected at the heart, whites and blacks and Hispanics and others, moving within the institutions of democracy to create transformation, institutional transformation, to change the lay and the law of the land. It was done at risk. It was done with courage. It was done with sacrifice. And that's that's the way... It always is, and that's the way it always will be. Um, but the, the people who who step up to to live in the world in that full-hearted way, and who, in so doing, call others to rally around them and create these communities of transformation, um, these are people who I think have realized that that there could be no worse way to die than to be thinking as you check out, I never showed up in this world with my true heart, with my genuine values, with my real self and and my real concerns and my real values and my real beliefs. I spent 50 or 60 or 80 years, um, Thomas Merton has a great phrase, living a life of self-impersonation, where I was playing a game to get along, but never really putting all of my cards on the table. And I can't imagine a worse a worse way to die. On the other hand, I, I can't imagine a more fulfilling way to live than, than to know that I'm living by my best lights and that even though I take my lumps as I do so, I am joining hands with others um, whom I admire for that same quality, and who call that quality out in me, even as I call it out in them. Mm-hmm. So I think it's it's that history is this constant interplay between our institutional structures, communities of transformation within those structures, which may involve a very few people. Certainly the civil rights movement at the beginning was a very few powerless people who drew on the power of the heart to create great change. And those communities, in turn, um, are called into being by courageous individuals um, who say, here I am, um, living with my heart on my sleeve, um, in, in contradiction to the, uh, the counsel that this culture gives us. Thank you for that, for that. Chris, we're going to take a break right now, and when we come back, just hold your question, and we'll jump right into that. This is Kate Ebner, listening to Parker Palmer, Chris Wall, and a conversation about the call to courage. Be right back. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Do you want to take your organization to the next level? 
the Nebo Company develops leaders, teams, and organizations to achieve their highest potential. We provide executive and team coaching, leadership courses, mentor programs, and retreats tailored to the unique goals of your organization's leaders. With national reach, Nebo specializes in helping senior leaders to articulate a compelling vision, then develop the strategy, goals, and accountabilities that make the vision real. For more information, visit NeboCompany.com. Be sure to ask about our leadership and life curriculum. Again, that's NeboCompany.com. What does conscious leadership mean to you? It unites organizations instead of dividing them. By exploring commonly based business challenges, it guarantees an increase in your bottom line. Tune in to Minding Our Business, Creating a Spiritual Economy with your host, Nadine Rogers. Each week, we'll hear from business leaders and learn from their strategies. We'll talk about personal and organizational best practices that you can learn from, and we'll hear from you. Minding Our Business airs live Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Business. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with host Kate Ebner. We'd love to hear from you. Pick up your phone and call into 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, please send it to visionaryleader at nebocompany.com. Now, back to today's program. Welcome back once again to a conversation I'm having with Chris Wall and Parker Palmer today. Parker is the recipient of 10 honorary doctorates, numerous national awards, including the William Rainey Harper Award, which was previously won by Margaret Mead, among others. Parker Palmer's life work has been to illuminate the possibilities that are inherent in our lives and call forth in us the courage to contribute to a better world. We've been talking about this very thing, about um, deep meaning of heart and what it means to live life as you. And as we come back from this break, um, I know we have so many questions for you, Parker, that an hour isn't going to do us justice today. But Chris, <laughs> why don't you pick up where where you are and we'll, we'll go there. Yes. So as I was listening to you talk about the, the person inside of an organization who can join with others to make a difference from a full-hearted way, I was reminded of your book, A Hidden Wholeness. And, and I know this idea of heart is also in your latest book about democracy. Um, and you write in that book that if you were to describe two words that American citizens need in response to the 21st century, the two words are chutzpah and humility. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? And then I would like to actually then hear you talk about your the five habits of the heart that you think are crucial Mm-hmm. Or sustaining a democracy. Oh, I'd be glad to to do that. So, chutzpah and humility are the two words that came to me as as, as a way of sort of summing up the five habits. Mm-hmm. Um, by chutzpah, I mean the, the belief that each of us has a voice, and we have things to say with that voice, and and we have a right to speak that voice. And I think one of the things that has um, has really struck me in 75 years of, of life and 50-plus um, years of working this, this territory professionally um, is how many people feel rather voiceless. Um, 
I think because they grow up in institutions, I, I will quickly just name educational and religious institutions as, as places that in many ways deprive them of a voice, places where they, they sit in chairs or in, in pews and listen to the experts hold forth rather than being evoked by leaders um, in, into, to, to speak in their own voice. So chutzpah is a quality to be reclaimed for many people, I think, and one on which democracy depends. But it's important that it be partnered with its paradoxical opposite, which is humility. And humility, of course, is the notion that as I speak my voice and as I, as I make my own truth claims, I need to understand that I very likely have only a partial grip on what's true, and I may have no grip at all. I may have lost my grip altogether. So if I really want to come into a larger and larger truth about whatever it may be, whether whether that's politics or science or anything in between, um, I need to learn to listen to other people with with that kind of intellectual and spiritual humility that says, I don't know it all, but I'm eager to learn more, so let me hear how the world looks from your point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, so on the five habits of the heart, um, Chris, if you'd like me to move to those. Um, uh, I would, and, but before you do, I have one question for you, and that is the way that you speak and the way that we understand what you speak, to me, sounds like we're talking about people who have a certain level of knowing and maturity. And I'm thinking that um, there, is a, there is room in our world for experts here and there. And I'm just wondering to what extent you believe that most people have this capacity to be able to see that it's time for chutzpah or it's time for humility or both. I think, I think a lot of people have had that beaten out of them. But I think when when they are put in a place where someone is encouraging them to reclaim those qualities, yeah. um, it's amazing how quickly they come back. It's a little bit like um, riding a bike again after not having done it for years. Mm-hmm. Um, just as those groups we were talking about earlier um, somehow make an easy transition from no longer fixing, saving, and advising, and correcting each other into deep listening to each mm-hmm. other. The reason is there's a yearning to have this experience. Yeah. And someone needs to establish the condition, uh, the conditions under which those qualities can come back to the surface. And, and once they do, um, to give people opportunity to use them. I think that's what some of the best youth work in this country, for example, yeah. is doing. Um, I, love, I love hearing that. And what I'm getting out of what you're saying is that you believe this is an innate quality. Absolutely. I, I think people come to earth with it and then, and then we lose it. I mean, one of the things we know about kids is that they are innate learners and question askers. Um, yeah. If you're the parent of a three-year-old, you're you're being driven crazy on a daily basis by the number of questions the child asks, and and the number of whys and what's uh, what is that all about that you're hearing? But we put quotes around being driven crazy because we value that quality in the child, and it saddens us if if we're wise. It saddens us when five, six, seven years later that quality has disappeared because of 
the conditions under which the child has been schooled. Yeah. Um, I, I often think that one of the great, great daily missions for adults in this society of any age is to run across a child with whom you have some kind of relationship and to ask that child a meaningful question about how the world looks from that child's point of view. Not to try to teach them something, not to try to deliver a message, but to learn something and in and in so doing uh, to encourage them to believe that they have a voice, which in fact they do. Yes, I love that. So, so let's move on uh, to the five habits of the heart. So we're jumping around a little bit, but I think all of this connects. Um, yeah, yeah, I do too. So just say quickly that yeah. the phrase habits of the heart is one that I borrowed from a 19th century writer named Alexis de Tocqueville mm-hmm. who, uh, who visited this country in the 1830s and, and wrote this brilliant book called Democracy in America, which is still probably the best book ever written on the, on the subject. Uh, Alexis de Tocqueville was himself a young man. He was 27 years old when he, when he pulled this off this tour de force. And um, he made many, many very prescient and prophetic observations about the United States. And one of them was that um, the future of American democracy would depend on the habits of the heart that its citizens developed. And he was using the word heart in that rich, full sense that we talked about earlier. He, he said, secondly, that the habits of the heart that its citizens developed would depend on what happened in those in those close-at-hand venues of daily life that we also mentioned earlier, the family, the neighborhood, the classroom, the congregation, the workplace, etc. And so in the book, I, I take that idea and I run with it in some, in some new directions mm-hmm. um, and name five habits of the heart that I think we absolutely need and also believe that we can develop because I've seen them develop in, in people in, in all of the settings that, um, that we've been talking about. I'll just name the five habits very quickly, and then you can let me know uh, where, where you'd like to go with these. Okay. The, the first is an understanding that we are all in this together. The second is an appreciation of the value of otherness. Because if we're all in this together, we are suddenly in a situation of great diversity, and we have to appreciate rather than fear the other, the stranger, the one who looks and thinks differently than we do. A third habit, the the third habit that I name is an ability to hold tension in life-giving ways. Instead of fleeing tension, instead of thinking about it as something that needs to be relieved, um, we, we need to be able to hold the tension of this diversity in a way that opens our minds and hearts to new ways of thinking, new ways of seeing, new ways of being and acting. The fourth habit is a sense of personal voice and agency. Mm-hmm. We were just talking about that. Yeah. This, take, this goes a little beyond um, speaking out. It, it goes to a sense of agency, which is that I can help make something happen. Um, around the things that I care about and that I speak about. And a fifth and final habit is a capacity to create community, 
um, which is, is, a, is a necessary component, I think, of developing personal voice and agency and also of, um, of, helping, of helping to make things happen um, once you have stated and acted on your truth. Thank you for laying those out as you did. I think that's very, um, it's very helpful to actually hear the five habits of the heart and contemplate them. We have time, I think, for a qu- one question before our break, which is in another minute. Chris, what are you thinking? Oh, boy. Um, I am thinking that um, holding tension in life-giving ways is a real um, challenge for many people. Uh, because of what you spoke about, you know, it's easier to flee, Parker, than it is to move move into or move forward with. And I'm just wondering if you have a quick idea, quick tips, or quick quick thoughts on what a person needs to do to be able to hold tension in a way that holds other as sacred, as well as self as sacred. Well, I think I would go back, um, since we don't have much time, to this notion that it's more important to be in right relationship than to be right. Um, And uh, the the more deeply I think into that one and the more deeply I live into that one, the more I understand how true it is. Uh Um, You know, I can win a fight or imagine that I've won a verbal fight, um, and the, the satisfaction that comes with it is pretty thin. It doesn't last long. And I'm, uh, I'm suddenly back in the world where it looks like there are all kinds of fights that have to be won. And that's a pretty stressful and pretty exhausting way to live. Mm-hmm. But if in each encounter across lines of difference, I can walk away saying, well, I don't agree with everything that person said, and he or she certainly doesn't agree with me, but we walked away with our relationship intact, and we can come back to this conversation another day, and we will. Um, Then I'm walking away with something life-giving, something that allows me to sleep well at night, something on which I can build. And and so, again, this human instinct for that which is life-giving rather than that which is death-dealing is the kind of thing that I think we can invoke in ourselves and evoke from others uh, that will that will carry the day. Thank you so much. Um, I'm going to read just briefly from your book, actually, and then we'll take our break. This is on the topic of how to, cult, you know, not how to, but that we must cultivate the ability to hold tension in life-giving ways. And Parker, you wrote that our lives are filled with contradictions from the gap between our aspirations and our behavior to observations and insights we cannot abide because they run counter to our convictions. If we fail to hold them creatively, these contradictions will shut us down and take us out of the action. But when we allow their tensions to expand our hearts, they can open us to new understandings of ourself, our world, enhancing our lives, and allowing us to enhance the lives of others. This is Kate Ebner. You're listening to Parker Palmer, Reflecting with Chris Wall, and with me today. We'll be right back. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Do you want to take your organization to the next level? The Nebo Company develops leaders, teams, and organizations to achieve their highest potential. We provide executive and team coaching, leadership courses, mentor programs, and retreats tailored to the unique goals of your organization's leaders. 
With national reach, Nebo specializes in helping senior leaders to articulate a compelling vision, then develop the strategy, goals, and accountabilities that make the vision real. For more information, visit NeboCompany.com. Be sure to ask about our leadership and life curriculum. Again, that's NeboCompany.com. It's time to take charge of your own career path. But how do you get started? First, tune in to The Career Confidant with Marie Zimanoff. Each show will feature national business leaders, tips and insight from Marie and her guests, career management tools, and a weekly career smart tip. She'll help you move forward, earn that promotion, get hired into the career you want, and brand yourself. The Career Confidant is broadcast live every Monday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with host Kate Ebner. We'd love to hear from you. Pick up your phone and call into 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, please send it to visionaryleader at nebocompany.com. Now, back to today's program. Welcome back. This is Kate. I'm speaking with Parker and with Chris, and this is the final segment of a big conversation about democracy, about the heart, about being together in the challenges that we face um, as a nation and I think as a world. We were talking before the break about the five habits of the heart that, um, Parker, you believe are crucial to sustaining a democracy, and we jumped in a little bit to just number three, the cultivating the ability to hold tension in life-giving ways. And I think, um, you know, as we reflect on that, we we have... Um, I think we're drawn to that one because we know it's not an easy thing to do and it's a really a reframing. But we also want to talk a little bit about community, which is something you refer to in a couple of these habits of the heart. Number one, we must understand that we're all in this together. And number five, we must strengthen our capacity to create community. And community is such a big theme in your work. Um, and I wonder, um, Chris and I both are mothers of teenagers and young adults. We talk and think about the millennial generation and how they're coming into management and leadership roles. And this seems like very important wisdom to share, particularly with young people, about how to lead in the 21st century, how to contribute with community as an important part of that equation. So I guess my question is really what advice you feel like we could offer our children, we could offer young people about finding and creating community. Yeah, it's it's a wonderful question. And I, and I think out of my own experience, what I want to do is, first of all, to flip it on its head and talk a little bit about what I've learned from the 20-somethings and 30-somethings with, with whom I've been working very intentionally in the last decade or so. Um, next month I turn 75, so I'm not exactly a young man anymore. And I'm very aware of rising generations um, with, with whom I want to connect for the sake of my, own, of my own well-being. You know, we have all of these developmental stages in life. And uh, Eric Erickson, who wrote a lot about adult development, uh, said that at one point in late middle life and early old age, um, the choice one has to make is between what he called stagnation and generativity. 
And generativity means turning around and taking a hand and a, in, in caring for that rising generation. And in my case, that's involved some wonderful new learning. For example, the generation of people who are now in their 20s and 30s, and this will take us right to the topic of community, they walk across lines of difference with an ease that was unknown in my generation. And I'm talking about racial differences. I'm talking about uh, differences in religion. I'm, I'm talking about differences in ethnicity and differences in sexual orientation that my generation really tripped over. And uh, some of us are still having a hard time with that. But the 20 and 30-somethings that I work with that just have a sort of a sense of human equality that is that's almost a given with them. And so my first step is trying to learn from that. Um, they, uh, I, I actually invited a group of 30-somethings, you know, you know, people in their late 20s and early 30s, to my home for three days a couple of years ago to help me um, get in touch with the world as they knew it. And this would include, of course, the, the world of technology, which my generation is, is late and sometimes slow to come to. And I remember in the middle of that three days of conversation, which is so rich for me, I said, you know, I feel as if I am standing, uh, I think at the time I was 73, at age 73, I'm standing somewhere down the curvature of the earth. And I can't see the horizon that you're seeing from from where you stand atop that curve. Um, so I need your eyes and ears to report to me what you're seeing. And I said, incidentally, I need you to speak loudly and distinctly when you give those reports so that I can understand what you're saying. Um, it, it was a very interesting way for me of, of saying how we are connected and how we need each other. And what they need from people of my age, I think, and, and people who have this longer-term experience, is, is an understanding that a word like community, for example, is not all fun and games. Um, it's, it's not a sentimental word. It's not an easy gig. Um, one of my uh, heroes in life is a man named Jean Vanier, who established uh, a chain of communities around the world called the Larsh Communities, where people without physical or mental disabilities live side by side with folks who have those disabilities in a really amazing form of shared life together. And Jean Vanier has a very simple definition of community. He says, uh, community is forgiveness, forgiveness, forgiveness. Um, because in community, we get so close to each other, we get so tangled up with each other, we trip across each other's, each other's feet, that a continual act of forgiveness, as Vanier says, is what's needed to keep community going. I lived in an intentional community for 11 years of, of my life with 80 other people, a Quaker community slash adult study center near Philadelphia, and one of the things I learned there is that when things get tough, as they always do in community, um, that, that does not signal the end of community. That's actually the doorway into deeper community. Right. If, if we know how to hold these tensions in life-giving ways, and, and how do we learn to hold them in life-giving ways? 
We simply do it and realize the fruits of it as our own minds and hearts expand. You know, this is why psychologists, for example, and here's a word that that not a lot of people don't know, we don't use it often enough, psychologists talk about tension creating distress, right? And we all know what that means. And we have all these meds out there to deal with distress. But there's another word that psychologists use, which is eustress, E-U-S-T-R-E-S-S, which means positive stress that actually alerts us to something larger than, than we currently understand and opens our minds and hearts to, to something new. So these young people said, we need that experience from you. We need to know what it's like to be in this for the long haul and what it takes. Thank you. Thank you so much. I mean, that's a, that's a very thoughtful answer to the question. We have... Once again, we're sort of down to the minutes here, but um, you know, I, I want to. I guess it's really probably time for us to close. Um, I'd like to just express um, gratitude to both of you, actually, to you, Parker, for the wisdom that you've shared with us today, and for the body of work that you've done um, for the creation of your center, which is a, a, I think, a source place for nourishing the soul and, and helping people renew so that they can stay engaged. Um, so I, I just want to thank you for being a part of our show today. And um, for those of you who are listening, I'd also like to encourage you to pick up a copy of any of Parker Palmer's books. Uh, I am absolutely loving Healing the Heart of Democracy and highly recommend it to all citizens. Um, but I, I think all of his books, Chris referred to other ones, um, it will help you go further in your understanding of, of this wise uh, perspective that we've been hearing today. Um, Parker, thank you for being with us today. Well, Kate and Chris, I want to thank both of you. I want you to know how heartening it is to me to hang out this way with people who <laughs> share these concerns and who are so wise about them uh, yourselves. Well, that is kind, and I appreciate it. And Chris, I also want to say thank you to you for um, the insight and the wise questions that you've asked today. It's just been a joy, as always, to have you on the show with me. Thank you, Kate, and thank you, Parker. I look forward to talking again sometime. Absolutely. We'll have to do it. (laughs) I'd love to. I'd love to. Thank you. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye. We sincerely hope you've enjoyed hearing from leaders who are using vision to create an inspiring future. Please join host Kate Ebner for another edition of Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life next Monday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Business Channel. Meanwhile, visit www.nebocompany.com for more tips on bringing your own vision to life.